Welcome to Winning with Diversity, a podcast to help you learn the strategies to transform your business through diversity, equity, and inclusion. I'm your host, Kurt Merriweather, VP of Products at the Diversity Movement. Today, we'll be exploring how organizations can build high-performing teams to create new products and develop innovative ideas to unlock business growth. I'm excited to be joined by Alberto Lemus, managing partner of Atwater Infrastructure Partners. Alberto has more than 20 years of experience in social infrastructure and real estate investment. He's a member of the Urban Land Institute, International Council of Shopping Centers, and a frequent guest speaker on topics of infrastructure finance and urban real estate. Alberto has served on the UCLA Board of Regents and is a proud graduate of UCLA as well as the Stanford Graduate School of Business and happens to be one of my classmates. Welcome to the show, Alberto. Thank you, Kerr. Appreciate it. One of the things that I, I like doing before we get started is to talk about a fun fact that someone could not learn from Googling you. And so what, what could somebody learn about you through this podcast that they wouldn't see if they were to search for you on Google? I am a huge um, San Diego Padre fan, you know, avid baseball fan, but especially the Padres. I grew up in San Diego and it's been a, a long dry spell. So. <laughs> <laughs> so huge Fernando Tatis fan. So enjoy enjoying enjoying a little bit of a, a little bit of a run. So got it. Some, something you wouldn't have picked up. Fernando Tatis is he gonna is he gonna be the the one who takes it to the next stage for the Padres? Is he gonna take it all the way home? I hope so. If nothing else, we've had uh, you know we're certainly enjoying it. He's he's very entertaining. So it's been a fun run. So you know it, it's it's definitely made uh, made watching the team fun again. So hopefully we'll get some wins in there, and but it's it's a it's a joy right now. Got it. And so you're you're in Pasadena and spent most of your time on the West Coast. And mm -hmm. so wanted to talk a little bit about your journey and what got you to the stage in your career as a managing partner at Atwater. Yeah, yeah. No, I appreciate that. And 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 again, thank you for having me on on your podcast. I'm excited about today. So, you know, between undergrad and graduate school, I, I worked for, you know, for AT&T and worked in telecommunications. And after business school, I spent about five or six years working on a, essentially a startup that was doing fiber build outs in major cities. Um, we were focusing on cities that were predominantly Hispanic. So we were working on um, Miami, Houston, Los Angeles, Chicago, or had you know, very significant Hispanic populations. So um, we realized that there was an opportunity to invest directly where, you know, my old company at that point, AT&T, was not investing in these fiber build-outs. I worked with a core of, of people who were there when I was there and saw an opportunity to really line up capital and build out these opportunities. So I, I was there for five or six years. We had a very good run. That got uh, sold to another uh, as part of a private equity roll-up. I said at that time that I had really enjoyed the property and acquisition component and ended up partnering with another one of our classmates, Mike Lowe, and transitioned into real estate at that point. And the vision there was to create an investment platform that would invest in areas that are predominantly Hispanic. Sort of we'd seen a number of platforms that were focusing on, on urban investing like Magic Johnson's and others. And we felt that there was a segment of the population that really wasn't being addressed. So we began this effort <clears throat> around 
2006 or so, 2005, 2006. So again, we saw an opportunity where we felt like you know, the broader markets were sort of missing it. Kind of and similar to, to my first, you know, the first part of my career, consistently seeing opportunities to invest and deploy capital where maybe other, you know, called the general markets or other sectors were, were not really seeing the opportunities. Ended up staying there for about 10 years or 10 or 11 years through a number of roles, raising capital for these you know, targeted investment platforms and then uh, deploying that capital. About five years ago, I decided that you know there was an opportunity that it seemed like the right time for me to really sort of spin out of that platform and really uh, develop a more, more focused effort to really, again, continue the same types of, of efforts of deploying capital in areas that are predominantly uh, minority but to do so maybe in a little bit more targeted way than I could under that platform. So that was really kind of the beginning of Atwater Infrastructure and, and how we began. Again, great set of friends that we developed along the way and the route. I partnered with two folks. One, one you may know, Henry Cisneros, who's a former Secretary of HUD, and, and Victor Miramontes to start the platform. And the idea is that we would uh, be able to deploy capital you know, across the country, really, in, in these opportunities. That's uh, quite the, the path there from... Uh, AT&T and rolling out fiber at a time where that was was novel. And now we take fiber for granted. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> and uh, uh, being able to see the opportunities that other people aren't seeing. And so that's going from one type of infrastructure to another one. Those are the areas that most people don't think of as being innovative, but certainly there's, there's some things that are happening there. And so you talk a lot of, about in, in your the things that you've done and the writings that you've done about uh, social infrastructure. Mm -hmm. And so that's a terminology that some may not be familiar with. So could you spend a little time talking about what social infrastructure is and uh, what some of the key trends are that you're seeing and how that started to change as a result of what's happened over the last 18 months with the pandemic and this awakening that's happened around social justice? Yeah, absolutely. So, Social infrastructure, you know, as, as we define it here at, at Atwater, it would be what most people consider sort of government buildings, parking structures, schools, you know, opportunities for to bring additional capital where, you know, where and ownership to those. During my time on the regions of the University of California, we saw this as well, where mo most infrastructure in the United States is, is, is financed through long-term debt, you know, through bonds, if you will. And we simply don't have enough borrowing capacity to meet the needs that we have as, as a society. So, you know, we have government buildings that are very long on, you know, very long on the two, so to speak. We have parking assets and, and other systems that are essentially run down and, and in need of significant investment. And school systems that are also, you know, the, the buildings of which are just really are, are now outdated and not really well uh, maintained. So... What we're looking to do is to bring additional capital in to support those systems and partner with municipalities and, and governments. Usually it's, it's governments. It could be uh, university systems and others, but uh, could be harbors and port authorities, but ultimately quasi-governmental structures that will allow us to bring in additional capital. We, in terms of the trends that have happened over the last, you know, that I've seen over the, the last uh, 18 months, I think even leading into the pandemic, it's really been, you know, exacerbated by what we've seen in the, in the last uh, 18 months, um, a lot of real focus on, on, on housing and housing infrastructure. 
you know, my partner, Henry Cisneros, who was the secretary of HUD, always says, you know, ultimately housing is infrastructure, right? If we don't have enough places for people to live and workers to live, uh, we have a real challenge. A real emp expanded emphasis on affordability and how we can, uh, particularly in, in those high demand markets, how do we get people to, to live in the right places in, in ways that are inclusive and, and, and building you know, opportunities for everybody? One of the examples of a project that I'm working on is working on a project in Nashville, Tennessee, with the Public Housing Authority in Nashville, that it's taking a 1930s era public housing project and going to knock it down. And all the residents who are there now will, will remain in it, but the, it'll basically triple the density. But I'm involved with the component that we're going to put about $100 million of what we call social infrastructure. These would be things like new libraries, new schools, um, new community centers, upgrading the parks so that the residents and, and the new residents that are coming, the goal being that they're going to be interacting in ways that, you know, that, you know, maybe wouldn't have been possible in the past. So again, you know, really thinking about these tools as ways of sort of helping to sort of engineer how, how communities can interact in a very thoughtful, deliberate way. That's a really powerful example of the steps that, whether it's communities, government or entities, non-governmental entities, and, and quite frankly, companies need to be thinking about is it's one thing to say, we're going to donate funds to a certain cause. Mm -hmm. The thing that you're talking about doing is building capacity. So what are, the, what are the different pieces in a community that you need in order to be an engine for preparing the community to have jobs, whether they're jobs in STEM fields, and you talked about you know, libraries and access to education, parks and other places to play so that you know, the community is, has access to those kinds of things so that it helps to get at the root cause of some of the disparities that we see. And mo most of the disparities that we see are due to lack of access. And so a lot of what you're doing sounds like it's it's getting at the heart of the, the access challenge that uh, a lot of folks in underrepresented communities and socio socioeconomically disadvantaged communities start to have seen for so long. You, you know, Kurt, around here, we, we often say that for a lot of folks that geography is their destiny, right? So if you happen to live in, in the census track where Casey Holmes is, the likelihood, you know, you, you're, the median income in that tract is about 17% of the greater Nashville region, uh, roughly one-fifth, a little bit less than a fifth. If you think about the impacts of housing, you think about the impacts of, you know, what we've seen in the pandemic of healthcare, access to healthcare, you know, people's ability. And one of the things we see, for example, is obesity rates in, in these similar communities. What happens is that a lot of the, you know, if families, many of which are working two jobs, they don't have a safe place for their kids to go out and, and run around. Right. And, you know, to, to have a situation where if you're in the house all day playing video games and eating unhealthy food, it's not a surprise what's going to happen, you know, to, to those kids, you know, three, five years down the road. Mm -hmm. And all of a sudden we get hit, you know, we get hit in a situation where we realize that people who, who are overweight and have, and, you know, have, you know, what we realized in the pandemic was those are the people that were most affected in those black and brown communities. So much of it ties to the fact that we simply don't have a safe place. We don't have a place to gather. So a lot of what we're doing is, again, with a very intentional way. So for example, we're working on building 
these facilities in, in such a way that it is safe. People can, you know, they do have well-organized, structured programs. You know, the things that in many communities that have better resources that are frankly taken for granted. And so the fact that my kid can go out and join a little league or the fact that, you know, we can, and, you know, I, I trust it's going to be safe is simply not possible in many of these communities. And I think that when we think about the, the sources of what, you know, these inequities that we've seen so much of in the past year, so much of it's tied to these kinds of core issues. And, and again, I don't think people think about them very much, but you're absolutely right that, you know, they, they are absolutely at the heart of much of what happens. Uh, people don't have adequate housing. People don't have uh, safe schools. To your point about jobs, I would just add one thing that in order for somebody to be uh, in a situation where, where they're kind of ready, they can get the training they need and they can ultimately be available they have to have a lot of other resources available to them. They have to have public transportation that's adequate. They mm-hmm. need to have a place where if they have kids, that their kids can be you know, dropped off and, and you know, taken care of and educated. If those aren't in place, you're not going to have, and again, many, this one of the things that the pandemic has demonstrated that for kind of everybody, if you don't have access to your kids, you know, daycare facility, you can't go to work, right? Well, that's an everyday, when you live in a public housing project, that's not, you know, only restricted to the pandemic, that's actually all the time. I don't have a safe place to drop my kids off. So, you know, what we do is we work with a lot of these facilities to put together, you know, very um, multi-layered, complicated structures so that these things can get built. Not only built, but maintained and supported so that they achieve the objectives. But um, then, of course, with the, you know, set of events that happened last summer, really highlighting social justice, so many of those um, situations and issues are tied to these kind of, you know, these core inequities that relate to how many of us live and how many of us, you know, receive so many of our core services. Um, so again, we think about that a lot. I know a lot of people don't necessarily think about them that way, but we, we spend a lot of time thinking about that. And back to the, the project in, in Nashville that we were talking about, what are some of the things that you were, you were doing as you were thinking about taking resources and relationships from the private sector and the public sector and finding ways to, to make those work together? so that folks' incentives were aligned and you were able to, to execute. I imagine that's not the easiest thing to do. Uh, yeah. so I'm curious about going behind the scenes a little bit on that. Probably the, the national model for this is, is a project called Purpose Built in Atlanta. And it took um, some of the old facilities after the Olympics and began to repurpose them to address you know, some of the systemic inequities in Atlanta. It was, it was kind of the template that was used. What we've done is we've sort of taken that, that same kind of structure Purpose-built was about 250 units somewhere, but I believe 250 or 300, and just taking it to completely another level in, in Nashville. And um, they're talking about uh, this project will be 2,700. But the, the notion behind that is that aligning large corporate interests, as you can imagine in Atlanta, there's, there's a lot of large corporations there that can support, and really aligning government, large corporate and a whole series of other sort of you know, types of, of, of donors and support to, you know, and with the idea, you know, healthcare providers, universities, um, to really, you know, take a, a broader approach and saying, look, this isn't just a, you know, local government problem. And I think that, or, you know, if we, you know, can just get a, you know, one type of tax incentive, this is going to be fixed. I mean, it's much larger than that, much more complicated. So a lot of what we're trying to do is, you know, we'll work with, with partners, that will align both sort of corporate interests and and you know trying to get cor- you know significant corporate participation. Uh, we're seeing that more now. It's a little bit more common uh, now in in the housing realm, 
We've seen a lot of the Silicon Valley firms, for example, getting more active in, in sort of affordability. You know, back in sort of the industrial era, we had this notion of the sort of the um, the company town where the the companies would actually participate in housing. Mm-hmm. And that was something that was common. Today, it kind of went away. And I think that there's a vision that there's a significant role for those corporations to play. And, and not just the housing, but also these other elements I'm talking about, Kurt, that, you know, so if, if I live in, in the Casey community, I don't have a YMCA. I don't, you know, there's not one that's close by or, or a boys and girls club where my kids can go and safely be supervised and get some, you know, get some exercise, get some after school support. They just don't exist. So we have to address those kinds of things as well. You recently uh, worked on a project with Tesla mm-hmm. uh, that had a pretty significant community redevelopment uh, element. And so I, I want to delve into how that came about and you know, what the impact has been and just kind of walk me through the, the genesis of that and then uh, you know where things are. Yeah. So the, you know, through my, my efforts when I was at Lowe at the time, we had, as I mentioned, we had raised a private equity pool of capital um, that was specifically targeting communities that you know had you know, high Latino populations. And through that process, I had reached out and, and formed relationships with many communities throughout California that had that profile, um, Bell being one of them. You know, the, the city itself is probably 95 plus percent Latino, has a median income of probably approximately you know, 60% of the Los Angeles region. It had a, a major scandal that was kind of in the news nationally around 2010 and was sort of a place that you kind of, for most people, kind of want to avoid, right? I mean, it had a lot of issues. And so I had formed some relationships with a lot of the, you know, kind of the new generation post-scandal and had um, was monitoring what they were doing. And, and I really felt that they had a fresh approach. You know, they had sort of completely cleaned house and, um, and there was an opportunity that came up that was to buy essentially about a half a block that was directly in front of city hall. And knowing what I knew about the city and how, you know, how much need there was, you know, we felt like we could put together a, you know, a compelling response for that. And, and we did that. We actually ended up getting selected. And our vision was really about um, a couple of things. One is that we felt like what was going to happen there had to be, had to reflect that community. It had to have businesses that, that, you know, were responsive to that community's, you know, needs and and wishes. And, you know, as, as in some ways obvious as that sounds, that's, that was a little controversial at the time because a lot of folks were saying, well, what we really want is, you know, I'll use some, some names that are probably well known. We want a Chili's or we want a, you know, an IHOP because those types of folks aren't around. And again, nothing against those particular brands, but that was kind of the word we were getting. We said, well, what if we could get, you know, a local you know, partners that want to essentially provide the same types of services, but maybe aren't those, right? But we really felt like it was going to have to be driven by tenants and ultimately you know, successful operating tenants that, that had a, that community sort of understood the, that community's needs. The, on the Tesla side, what it, it's interesting because they, they essentially came to find out about us through some, you know, some local press. And they said, we've been looking for a place in the sort of inner Los Angeles ring that we can deploy our level three superchargers. At first, we were somewhat skeptical, didn't really see, you know, we could, we need to learn more. But as we began to learn more, we really be, we thought this is a new opportunity for us. This is an opportunity to link into the electric vehicle infrastructure, which is important for communities, particularly a community like this that has historically been subjected to a lot of environmental, you know, 
a lot of environmental issues, you know, like many, many black and brown communities, it's sort of linked into those old industrial cores where there's a lot of historic environmental contamination. And we really felt like it was important for us to, to have a, uh, this community to have a, a part in the new generation of, of how transportation is going to work. Um, the other component to it was that we felt like bringing in new, so some new faces was going to be a positive. We really believe that as Tesla users would begin to interact and, and, and combine, they would learn more about the community and, and vice versa and give an opportunity for, for those two groups to kind of interact. Um, so we uh, ended up, you know, pursuing that and putting in the first level three, which is um, allows cars to charge in a very accelerated manner. So uh, it requires a lot of input going back to infrastructure, it requires a lot of work into the electrical grid. Uh, we had to wire blocks. You know, we can't just take a phone line from the pole and do this, unfortunately. So we had to wire blocks and blocks away many, many months to you know, redo that area. But when we were completed, we now have the, you know, again, the, that, that first facility. But what's really been interesting is we've been focusing on our tenants as, as much as possible. We're trying to create an opportunity for small businesses and particularly small businesses that are diverse. So the idea is that as people are charging, they come to charge, we're going to have eventually seven in the first phase, three initially, and then four more that will follow. So think about this as kind of your traditional convenience. So today when you stop, uh, you know, on the East Coast, you all have the um, toll roads where you'll pull off and there'll be, you know, you'll right. fuel up and you'll have a whole series of places that you can eat. In some ways, it's inspired by that, right? So you you would be able to charge, but you'd have five or six different places. So you'd have a, a, a person doing sandwiches, you'd have somebody doing burgers, somebody might be doing Mexican food. But all of these, the, the vision is that we're creating these opportunities as a platform for small businesses. And that's really the interesting interaction that we're seeing and um, going back to your point about Tesla, as Tesla began to understand, and they've seen now the dynamic that's that's taking place, they, they really have sort of the light bulb has sort of gone off. And, and they're saying that they, they are seeing now this as an opportunity for them to interact with communities. In the past, sometimes, frankly, they're not always that welcome, right? But they're now seeing this as an avenue to, to your point of being inclusive, including that those communities, you know, and using this as a platform for those communities to to shine, if you will, for local for those local businesses to now have an op a better platform to share their products and services, and I think as they look at it that way, they're saying, "Hey, th this is really these new models could be very very attractive for us, and really allow us again not in every one of their locations, but in select locations, they think that this can really help them." That's that's a really powerful example of unintended consequences that are positive, mm -hmm. and so the key thing is, oh, I need. I need a supercharger here because it's too far away for me to go to the next supercharger. And I know my Tesla customers need to get their cars powered. Mm -hmm. And being able to combine that with this economic you know, impact that they're able to have in ways that weren't anticipated is, is something that if companies start to embrace diversity differently, that I think could be pretty powerful. And, and one of the things that I, I talked about and wrote about recently was this, this notion of four-dimensional brand building, using diversity, equity, and inclusion, and putting that at the center of how companies are thinking about things. So it's one thing to say, I've got, I welcome all people, and I've got this amazing company, and I put the right pictures on the website. Right. The reality is the employees have to embody that, and the way that people are thinking about that uh, from an external and an internal point of view need to match. And so employers 
should be matching how they're portraying themselves externally with what's actually happening internally. And so this is a pretty powerful way to do that combined with the things that are happening around the community redevelopment aspect of it. So the, the four dimensions that I talked about are employer brand, community brand, innovation brand, and customer brand. Mm -hmm. And so this is a pretty powerful example of all those things coming together. So you've got this new way to interact with your community. Tesla by itself is doing something that's innovative. So it's easier for them to, to be innovative than other companies. Mm -hmm. And now their customers are thinking about the brand differently because now that when I stop off to your point about you know some of the stops that you have down on toll roads that I'm thinking about the stops I used to make between Maryland and Philly uh, when I was living on the East Coast uh, and uh, Maryland is being able to come to this place. And now I'm interacting with people I wouldn't or ordinarily interact with and I get access to brands, experiences that I wouldn't ordinarily have. And so you've got this virtuous cycle that happens across those things. And so that's that's a really powerful concrete example of you know something that we've been talking about. And so the thing that I'm curious about is instead of saying, we're going to have a Chili's, we're going to have these local entrepreneurs have opportunities to be in this space. What are the things that need to happen for that to occur? Because one of the things that I know doing work with like the supplier diversity is there's capacity building that needs to happen sometimes. And yeah. Get local businesses ready to be able to take advantage of that opportunity. So it's not just enough to have, you know, the greatest tasting coffee. There's some other things that need to happen. And so what, what are some of the things that you've been doing to help entrepreneurs uh, take advantage of those opportunities uh, to, to, to expand themselves using uh, this as an example? You're, you're right on the mark. I mean, I think part of the reason that I, you know, I wanted to have Atwater as a platform is that we knew um, because of the nature of, of the leadership here, that we could have these kinds of goals. I mean, first and foremost, you know, we have capital partners that are expecting you know financial returns. So that that's number one. We also have you know a separate goal that we we want to see environmental outcomes in communities for, as we've talked about that by investing in these communities that are going to be you know structurally give us an opportunity to to really to be able to enjoy our lives and, and pursue those opportunities that we want to. And, and then the, the third leg of that is, is having that, you know, that access to that capital, right? And what we've seen is that we have a lot of really interesting companies that come to us and we sort of have learned about us. And I'm literally working earlier today, I had calls with two of them, both, you know, great sort of up and coming entrepreneurs who are really inspiring to me. Because you see that hustle and that drive that, you know, that people have and to create their vision, but they don't have that sort of traditional entrepreneurship training, you know, Kurt, like you and I got. So they really need to have you know, some support. And one of the biggest ones is really capital because, you know, having access to that capital, they might have great ideas or they might have, you know, done one location, but now to take it multi or kind of that next step is, is really a big challenge for a lot of these folks. To your question about what we've really worked with in terms of, you know, I mean, I'll just use one example. We we worked with a, a group called Border X, which is a, a brewery targeting the Latino experience in the United States. So they originally started in San Diego. I knew the founder from my time in San Diego, and he had come to me in, I think, in 2018, approximately, and said, hey, I, I really want to expand to L.A. I think our brand's doing well. We see that as the natural, you know, the, the next phase of our growth. 
and knew that I knew the markets very, very well. And so we spent some time brainstorming about it and ultimately thought that the opportunity in Bell was going to really, you know, be kind of combine those. But what we found is that, you know, he, did, he didn't have enough capital. He went to his local bank and, you know, they didn't really see the same vision. And, and I recall a story um, I had gone, he, he asked me a couple of times, can you come with me to, you know, I'm going to meet with XYZ Bank. I don't want to embarrass anybody. So I'll call. <laughs> so, so um, I, also, I also work with XYZ Bank. <laughs> so they, you know, we, we, we go down and, um, and they had pulled statistics on, on Bell, you know, the, the financial, all the stats that are available. And the banker says to us, he says, well, you know, I looked online and, and you know, a pint of beer for you guys is $6. And he's like, I just don't understand how folks who have that median income in this community are going to be able, you know, are going to be able to, to, to do that. He, his comment was, that's the same price that I'm paying, in, you know, on the West Side or in Hollywood, you know, kind of, you know. And he's like, how is this going to work? And again, it goes back to that lens of, of what we're very intentional. So and we knew this community, for example, we know that multi-generational is a very big deal. The Latino community about 70, has a 77% higher incidence than the general market does of being multi-generational, meaning you have sort of grandma, you know, the parents. That was very much my experience growing up as well. Very, very typical experience. And we understood this. We, when we, that these statistics, when they were looking at these individual incomes, wasn't really capturing the household's capability. And so we, we felt very good about our research and that we were going to be supported. But again, it's that kind of deeper lens of saying, you know, I'm going to look beyond to sort of the surface statistics and, and try to understand, you know, what businesses can, can work well and thrive. So for us, that underwriting and that knowledge is critical because ultimately when we make lease decisions, we're leasing to these partners, we have to be confident that, you know, when we do our own due diligence, that we're, we're confident that they understand the market as much as we do. So as we're doing this analysis, you know, we're, we're looking at it with that lens of not sort of the, the surface statistics, which we know are not going to be, frankly, that impressive, but more people who can understand and kind of peel back a layer or two and saying, these are communities with a lot of, you know, they do have discretionary capital. And for people who deliver great products and services, they're willing to, to go there. And they'll support them in a, in a very big way. But I think it, it, for us, it was that kind of willingness to really kind of dig in a little bit and, and understand it a little bit deeper. So I, I will share with you that, you know, the, we were open for a year pre-pandemic. Of course, in the pandemic, we were closed down. And now as they've come back online, it, it's really been amazing of the support that the local communities come out. And they essentially have embraced you know, Border X is their own. Like they've used as their place now. Mm -hmm. um, and and um, it's a place where, you know, they can gather, you know, and, and neighboring communities. I've had many of their elected officials and leaders come to me and say, how do I get one of these, right? Why did, why did, you know, and, and I tell them, you know, because they're not used to sort of a place like Bell being the place that gets the good stuff, right? You know, the, they're just not used to it. So um, for us, that's been really rewarding and mostly because, I mean, you know, frankly, Kurt, folks there deserve it. They have great, amazing people who've, um, through no fault of their own, you know, they, they, they're in a community that had had some issues, right? Mostly it's just great folks who go to work every day and, you know, they don't have anything to do with that stuff. So their, you know, their view is, hey, you know, if this has been a reason that people aren't coming here, I mean, you know, what do I have to do with that, right? So there's a sense of pride now that people want to come there, that they want to be a part of that community. Um, the same thing with Tesla as, as people have come there, the fact that it was the first, you know, in, in that whole sort of, you know, sector of Los Angeles County 
that they're they're now getting things you know kind of leading now and it, and so it, it creates a sense of hey you know we're a community that that has some pride and that we've you know that we're a good place too and we deserve good things too so it, it's been great to watch and great to be a part of it yeah uh, that's that's an amazing story you know one of the things i always wonder about when you you know when i hear stories like that is why is that so hard why are people overlooking those kinds of opportunities that seem like they're so obvious uh, to us? I can only answer for us. I mean, in some ways, we, we want those opportunities. In a sense, you know, if I go back to my career where I began in, in you know, building fiber, we were looking for the, you know, kind of the obvious opportunities that were being missed, right? And then I went to real estate and the same thing. Where, where are those opportunities that are being missed? Let's deploy capital strategies and, and, and address those. And now um, it's the same you know, same pattern. Where are these opportunities that are being missed? And, and you know, we feel like we're being rewarded just for us, frankly, taking the time to listen, right? These communities are telling us, I mean, I will share this. This is a very timely. So last night we had an event and um, now we, we will do, we were doing a screening because culture is a big part. So we're doing a screening and we mainly pop QR codes, right? So at the end of the event and people are now and doing live, they're giving us live feedback. And they're literally telling us, these are the things we want. This is where I'm coming from. Um, so if we take the time to listen, in this case, the consumers are telling us what they want. So I, I think a lot of the answer, Kurt, is that, you know, I think a lot of folks, I don't know if it's the fact that maybe they didn't have an interest or they had maybe other places that they were their focus was. But I, I think, you know, and I'll speak in, in the case of Tesla, you know, I've spent a lot of time with their regional leadership here. And, you know, they're kind of of the same mind that, you know, there's there are great opportunities here that we didn't even think of and great ways for us now to you know, position ourselves by just listening a little bit more, listening to what the communities kind of want and finding some partners who can, you know, take that and actually make it actionable. Now it is, it is hard and it, it, it's some work, right? And there's, it's, I don't want to, you know, paint it to be, you know, just a, a walk in the park, right. but if you're willing to listen and really, you know, you have talented teams around you who can take that information and make it happen. So that that's where we're hopefully, you know, I think that that's where we've, what we've learned is by listening to, to what the consumers are telling us and really trying to put that into action. You said a lot there and just to kind of summarize that a little bit, it's this notion that we talk about when we work with teams is, and I, I uh, always need to quote my, uh, one of my good friends, John Samuel, who, who's a partner in a, a company called Abler. Uh, which helps uh, teams make sure that their websites are compliant for people who are who may have disabilities. And so one of the things that John talks about a lot is that proximity builds empathy or breeds empathy. Mm. And so that's that's the key thing, right? So this this whole project you're talking about is once I take my preconceived notions of what I think is true, and then I test that with reality because now I'm in this new community, I'm new in this new environment, I'm tasting this beer that I've never had before in a space that I've never thought that I would be, it forces you to challenge your assumptions. Mm -hmm. And so it's that the distance gets closed. And so now you're more empathetic. And so when you're more empathetic, then new possibilities open up. That's one of the things that, you know, hopefully as we uh, go through, the one thing about the pandemic is everybody had the same experience at the same time. It's like the first time in history all <laughs> say we all went through it together at the same time so, yeah since the bubonic plague right <laughs> <laughs> right, right. right. And i wasn't so, around for that. I don't know, I don't know <laughs> and so being able to have 
this challenge all of our assumptions around what we think is true. I think that's one of the things that's been helpful. And, you know, certainly there was enough, I'll call it intellectual arrogance and it doesn't, it doesn't necessarily change for everybody, but I've got the right answer. It's this, here's the profile, here's the plan. We're going to do it like this. And all of that's been challenged over the last 18 months. And so I think people are rethinking everything to find new opportunities. And so I'm excited about, um, you know, what we're seeing now you've got people who are more open than they've ever been before to have an experience with people who are different from them and not only have that experience be rich in terms of a sense of belonging, but now there's business opportunity that exists as a result of that, mm -hmm. that's being unlocked in ways that has never been unlocked before. And so to, to close, one thing I want to ask you is, you know, what do you think the future looks like? Is this, is this a fad or do you think this is something that is going to be sustained over time? As you're seeing these kinds of projects, well, we we certainly believe, and and we want to, we want, and you know, we've we've shared with Tesla that we believe in this, you know, this model, and for a couple of reasons. Number one, it aligns our goal of you know, deploying capital in a really responsible way that creates opportunities, you know, for the for the communities that we're in, investing in directly, and having a partner like them who's willing to work with us is something that we think is it certainly has a lot of opportunity. So we 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 definitely want to do more of it. I don't think there's virtually any doubt that the nature of how we, you know, mobility is going to change and it's going to impact, you know, a lot of communities. Um, that impact can either be a positive or it can be maybe not so positive. And what we're really committed to is saying, can we bring our, our innovation, our, our thinking, our capital to make it positive? And, and that's why we, we really, you know, like this part of what we're doing. Well, Alberto, thanks for uh, spending some time with us today. This has been really enriching on so many different levels and uh wish you the best of success as you're you're continuing to do things that are hard but are meaningful and so uh congratulations for the work that you've done and uh look forward to connecting with you again soon walking in someone else's shoes seeing it from a different view thanks for joining us everyone we'll be back soon with another episode Make sure to visit our website at thediversitymovement.com for more podcasts, white papers, videos, blogs, and tools to introduce DEI and innovation to your organization. If you found value in this show, be sure to subscribe to Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen, or simply tell a friend about the show. And to experience DEI and innovation in action, please check out our TDM Connect app when you visit our website. This episode was edited and produced by EarFluence. I'm Kurt Merriweather, and we'll see you next time on Winning with Diversity. Tomorrow's and believe we're all worth it. Can be the change with the world. We all deserve your voices to be heard. To we are who we are, who we are. Yeah, take some courage and a little bit of unknown. Mix with kindness and watch how it goes.